and welcome to the Clinical Care Options and Global Medical Education Neurology and Psychiatry Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Lisa Phipps. Today's episode features Dr. Joseph Goldberg, Clinical Professor of Psychiatry, Icon School of Medicine, Mount Sinai, and Dr. Greg Mattingly, Associate Clinical Professor of Psychiatry and Psychopharmacology at Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis, Missouri. They will be discussing the role of antidepressants in bipolar disorder. This episode is part of a larger educational program titled Recent Advances in the Management of Bipolar Depression. For more information on Dr. Goldberg and Dr. Mattingly, along with links to other bipolar depression programs, including other podcasts and clinical thought medical commentaries, please visit the show notes. Now let's get started and hear what the experts have to say about the role of antidepressants in bipolar. Okay, well, let's begin our our, uh, program on what is the role for antidepressants in bipolar disorder. I'm Dr. Joe Goldberg here with my friend uh, and colleague, Dr. Greg Mattingly. Greg, good to virtually see you here today. Joe, great to join you as always. So we have some interesting questions to start us out in a a dialogue, uh, and I will put the ball in, in play, Greg, by posing the first of our questions to you. So are you ready? We're ready. Let's go. You look ready. So here we go. First question. So what is your opinion of trying newer antidepressants? And by newer, things like vortioxetine or olazodone, you know, sort of the newer generation serotonergic drugs for bipolar depression, given that they haven't yet been formally studied for that indication. Greg, what's your opinion there? No, I, th- I think it's an interesting area to, to think about, but I would put it in the caveat of some of the precautions I would take anytime we're using antidepressants, especially monotherapy and bipolar depression. There are some things that make you interested. You know, both vortioxetine and velazidone, their primary mechanism of action is modulating the serotonin 1A receptor. In my case, I've used a lot of velazidone for people that have comorbid anxiety disorders with mood disorders. And I found it to be fairly effective for modulating anxiety in the conjunct of also having an underlying mood disorder. With vortioxetine, I think what's interesting there is, you know, some of the cognition data, Joe. We've been a part of a number of the trials looking at, you know, what happens with processing speed, digit symbol substitution, those types of things. And I'll take our listeners back to the very mechanism of action of vortioxetine and its original patent. There's a study there that many others forgot that when you stimulate serotonin 1A and you block serotonin 3, something magical happens that doesn't happen with any other antidepressant. You raise acetylcholine in the hippocampus. And so from the original patent, we knew there was something unique about the cognitive aspects of vortioxetine that I think makes it very interesting in people that do have bipolar disorder with those kind of cognitive symptoms that we sometimes see. What I especially like about there's a few things about this question that I, I think deserve some some discussion. So I've written about this and, and and talked about it. When we talk about antidepressants, monoaminergic antidepressants as a class, we're really talking about everything that's been studied up to 1999. And at last check, there has not been a randomized trial with any monoaminergic antidepressant that was invented after 1999. We kind of put the put the brakes on the whole class uh, in its entirety with that and and sort of spoke of class effects when really what we're talking about was the first generation SSRIs and the first couple of SNRIs. So as you point out, Greg, you know, vortioxetine is I think a wonderful example of it's not a me too. It's it's got its own unique mechanism. And so for me as both a, a researcher and a clinician, I'm a bit sad that we're not seeing studies with newer drugs and we're lumping them in with the older drugs, which used to be newer drugs. When people write about newer antidepressants, they're talking about drugs from 1991, when in fact, we've got these these novel molecules that may very well be exerting brain effects that we don't know about. So the clinician in me 
sort of weeps silently thinking, gosh, I wish we had studies with this because really the way to answer the question is, well, what do the studies say? And when there are no studies, that typically means we're going to reserve these kinds of agents for people for whom other things haven't worked. So the way I would kind of phrase this in my own mind or to a patient is, well, we know what does work, traditional first-line treatments. We've got four FDA-approved options and bipolar depression, and we've got off-label data with a number of other things. And after that, then what? So you could say, well, here's, here's a couple of examples of newer molecules that might have value, but for full transparency, I'm going to have to tell the patient, there's really no data with this for your particular ailment, which means it's a reasonable thing to try. There's a rationale. I wouldn't probably put it ahead of the evidence-based things, but I wouldn't probably take it off the table either. I, I concur 100%, Joe. So I think we could give them caution. But we say, you know, there may be some hopes, especially for certain subsets of your symptoms that maybe haven't responded with some of our other agents. I love in particular the two things you call out, Greg, about cognition and anxiety, since we know both of those probably deserve to be primary outcomes in some clinical trial somewhere. I love the way the, the vorteoxetine data should have had almost as a, as a co-primary outcome, the change in digit symbol and controlled for the effects. This is in unipolar, you know, disorder and controlled for the effects on mood to say, wow, there's a distinct effect on attentional processing. And we know that people with bipolar disorder, as much as cognition is a problem in unipolar, cognition is, is part of what gets inherited in people with bipolar disorder, not to the extent as in schizophrenia, but far more so than unipolar. We both see patients, I think, who come to us saying, hey, doc, I think I have ADD, or hey, I think I've got something besides bipolar. And we might to ourselves think, well, you may have the attentional problems of bipolar disorder. And then we try to think of sparing molecules and minimizing antihistamines and things like that. But so I, I sure hope somebody somewhere is going to do some, some clinical trials work with, with the newer agents and not just lump them lock, stock, and barrel with, with the older drugs. Yeah. And Joe, I would point out to the audience, once again, we're talking about receptor modulators. Yeah. And a lot of our newest atypicals, having done a lot of that research as well, what are they? They're receptor modulators. Yeah. Protonin 1A is a common receptor modulated by a variety of our atypicals that are approved for complex mood disorders. So I think these newer antidepressants, I agree with you, would love to see them researched, would love to see more data, because right now we all have our one-off opinions about what we've seen with one or, one or two patients, but would love to see a bigger data set. Fully agree. Onward. Leah, let me flip it around to you, Joe. So what's your opinion about the possible safety efficacy of antidepressants? Let's contrast, I know this is an area you've written quite a bit about. Thinking about bipolar one, bipolar two, where would you use antidepressants? Where would you avoid them? Give the audience kind of a where the lay of the land is at this point. Yeah, so this is the, we're, we're sort of getting into this territory of the age-old debate about antidepressant safety and efficacy. For, for so long, the concern was about safety. If I give an antidepressant to a bipolar patient, will that launch them into the, um, the stratosphere of, of mania or hypomania, paying the price for efficacy, as it were? And then the studies seem to suggest actually more the issue is in a way the other way around. The risk of switching someone is probably a whole lot less than we thought, but the efficacy is what remains to be demonstrated, at least with antidepressants that were invented before 1999. So if we stratify things and say, well, is there such a thing as a good candidate or a poorer candidate for an antidepressant? The bipolar one, bipolar two diagnostic distinction comes up and, and there, there, there's been meta-analysis on this and you know, articulation of the idea that risk for switch and even efficacy has been studied mostly in bipolar ones more so than bipolar twos. 
there's a smattering of literature explicitly looking at antidepressant safety and efficacy in bipolar two exclusively, which is actually rather favorable. As you know, there, there's some positive data with sertraline, there's some positive data with fluoxetine, there's even a study with venlafaxine. Problem with those studies is they're small. They're usually single site studies, usually from one specific site in Pennsylvania, and they don't have replication with, with large sample sizes that lets us make generalizations. But when you put them all together, a meta-analysis would say that there may be a lesser risk for switch into mania or hypomania, I should say, in bipolar two than bipolar one depression. So much so that practice guidelines or, or the ISBD consensus statement from a few years ago that I think we were involved with, you know, sort of said, you're very leery about antidepressant monotherapy in bipolar one. It, it may be a, a reasonable proposition in bipolar two. And I think we're going to talk about monotherapy versus combo in, in, a, in a few minutes. But I think safety-wise, you may be on better ground with bipolar two. Efficacy-wise, we're limited by these three or four proof-of-concept placebo-controlled trials that say, you know, you, you, you'll see either comparability or non-inferiority to lithium with sertraline. You may see some benefit with fluoxetine. Monotherapy in bipolar two patients with caveats, if they've had a good initial response, if they haven't had a switch on the front end. So I think we have to watch these things carefully. But if there is a database out there that supports antidepressants and bipolar disorder, I think the bipolar two versus one distinction is high on the totem pole for, for making the distinction. But what do you think? So let me just summarize it. I think you've got it right on mark. So if we go back to the data, bipolar one, antidepressants, not much data, probably should avoid them. It's a mistake we all make, and it's a mistake that probably the data says is the wrong thing to do. Bipolar 2, we have some data that says antidepressants possibly. For the right patient in those patients, there's some data there, a couple of small trials, as you said, that for bipolar 2, those patients who have never had a full-blown manic episode that's lasted for a week or more, those people that have the milder episodes that last for several days up to four days, the bipolar 2 group, antidepressants used carefully may show some benefit there. Let's go into a subset. And I think this is a question they asked for you and I to kind of share. Let's talk about, you know, when to use antidepressant? When do you use it with a mood stabilizer? What are the factors that tell you, hey, listen, just don't go there. Don't use the antidepressant versus when does it make sense to use it? Let me flip it up. And you said something. How about people that have had a lot of mixed symptoms, Joe? What would you do there? Yeah, so I think it's, uh, it's just say no. So it's easier in my mind to make a list of who not to give an antidepressant to than who to give an antidepressant to. Some of these should be obvious, but they're not. So for instance, don't give an antidepressant to someone who's manic. You know, Greg, there's literature saying people that get hospitalized for mania sometimes stay on their antidepressants. And there was a study at Yale some years ago looking at this, you know, querying politely the staff saying, um, you know, if, if Mr. Smith is, is here for mania, why, why is he still on his antidepressant? And oftentimes the response was not, oops, it was, well, he might get depressed tomorrow. <laughs> We, we have all seen it, haven't we? we? We've all seen it, and we've probably all been guilty at once or twice of making the same mistake. It, it, it's a toughie because, it. I mean, I can see where you're coming from, but at the same time, if you believe that during mania, to your point about mixed features, and as, as the STEP-BD showed, and, and as the Stanley data showed, during mixed features, it's not, there's no evidence that antidepressants are helpful in that context. So rather than all or none, are they good, are they bad? You know, when are they useful? When are they non-useful? And I, I always analogize mixed features to gasoline fumes in the room, and the antidepressant is the striking of the match. 
If there's no gasoline fumes in the air, that is no mixed features, pure depressed phase, which is the minority of bipolar depressed patients, but no mixed features, energic, lethargic, motorically, you know, all that, bipolar two, then there may be value in an antidepressant. But Mark Fry's data, which people don't talk enough about it, in the Stanley Foundation showed even low grade mania symptoms during depression, never mind a mixed state a la DSM-5, just you know, you talk fast, you're overanimated, that was enough to propel those fumes into uh, something more incendiary. So I almost have to stop myself sometimes with patients who are very depressed and say, wait a minute, there's this animated quality suggestive of, of a mixed features specifier and taking away the antidepressant may be beneficial, whereas continuing it has no known, known benefit. Yep. And let's just go back to the audience out there. When we talk about mixed features, what we mean is we have one phase of the illness, either mania or depressed, though I'm keyed up, but I have a few symptoms of the opposite phase. And uh, Joe, as I was listening to you talk, I was thinking about, you know, why would somebody manic still get an antidepressant? I've had people call asking for antidepressants if they're manic. Yeah. Because you can be dysphoric and manic. Mm -hmm. You can be dysphoric with racing thoughts. You can be dysphoric with not needing to sleep. You can be dysphoric. So those people that have mixed symptoms will call in quite often asking for antidepressants. And you have to step back and say, hey, listen, the data is that's what's going to harm this condition. It's going to destabilize you. It's not going to help you. And it is hard when you have someone who's been on an antidepressant and they start cycling up. I've done this many times and I'll say, you know, I really think we should stop this antidepressant. I think you're making things worse. And they look at me like I have four heads and they say, but I'll get depressed and say, well, I don't know that you're going to get depressed. And believe me, I'm, I'm right there watching for that. I don't want to see you get depressed. But we have other things to anticipate and reduce the risk of getting depressed. We can talk about those at, at some other podcast besides monoaminergic antidepressants. No monoaminergic antidepressant, to my knowledge, has ever shown prevention of depression when there's any mixed features or when you're coming out of a mixed episode. So it, as much as we, neither the patient nor we want to see them get depressed, parking them and leaving them on an antidepressant through a mixed state, I don't think is an evidence-based way to forestall worsening depression. Okay, let's go through some of your data I've seen in one of your publications. Matter of fact, Joe, I'm going to give you credit. I use one of your slides when I do CME talks that walks us through this. So if it's a bipolar one episode, we don't want to use antidepressants. If there's been current or recent mixed symptoms, we don't want to use antidepressants. Where else should we not use antidepressants in a bipolar depressed patient? So one of the things that drew me to study this ailment in kind of an intellectual way is it's not static. You know, with all due respect to unipolar researchers, you're either euthymic or depressed. And in the bipolar world, things are moving around. So we're not just doing a cross-sectional snapshot of your symptoms now. I really need to know how you've been over the last three to six or more months. And someone who's been euthymic and now goes into a depression is different from someone who two months ago just came out of the hospital in a manic episode and is now in a post-manic depression. In other words, they're not done cycling yet. And I think we, we, we are obliged to see the panorama because we're really trying to treat the switch process. So someone that's going back and forth across the equator over the last six months or more, farther out, is probably not a good candidate for an antidepressant because their switch process, the, the friability of their mood is really what we're, we're after. So there's, there's been some mixed data on this. The STEP-BD study showed that. Some other studies question it. But I think recency of mania uh, is, a, is a ding against antidepressants. Similarly, um, rapid cycling by the DSM definition, right? So four or more episodes per year, not lability, not you know rapid cycling all of last Thursday which may be more of a mixed thing, but 
But Nasir Ghami and, and Rith Malik's uh, study from STEPBD, I think, interestingly showed that even if you got initially better with an antidepressant added to a mood stabilizer, if you had four more episodes in the last 12 months, that bought you more episodes going forward. Yeah, it doesn't last. That's exactly right. And I call that kind of the antidepressant misadventures. Yeah. I mean, because I think you have to think of this as I'm treating the switch process. And I use that phrasing with patients uh, in the pre-COVID era, when I'd see people more face to face, you could draw this out as a sine curve and make a little X at the inflection point and say, this is the enemy. It's the change factor. And antidepressants don't treat inflection points. Joe, how do you factor in things like family history and maybe even some genetic markers? I know you've written a little bit about that. How do we kind of include those in our risks as far as when to use or not use antidepressants? So the genetics is interesting. There, there was originally a study in, I think, 1991, which was the first one to say that antidepressant-induced mania might be a, a biological subtype of the illness. It was some work out of, um, I think, Sid Kennedy's group in Canada that showed if you had a particular variation in the gene for the serotonin transporter, you were much more likely to develop a mania or a hypomania when taking an SSRI than if you, if you had a different form, uh, the so-called long variant of the serotonin transporter was helpful and protective against switch. And since then, there's been a meta-analysis that, that says, well, all told, it looks like if, if you do pharmacogenetics on someone and it's another variable of interest, and you happen to have two copies of the short variant of the serotonin transporter gene, that gives you about 130% higher chance that you'll get manic or hypomanic with an SSRI. But that's a provisional finding still. It's not like just do the genetics test, and now you'll know whether to give an antidepressant or not. We're, we're sort of building a story. So I'd say it's another variable in the equation, just like bipolar 2 or rapid cycling. Or did you have a good response? I mean, there's another database that says if you've had a mediocre initial response to an antidepressant, don't leave it lying around. It's not going to do any good. Vary that to, to someone who's had a, a more robust and effective response. And then the, the last other piece to this I suppose, is um, someone who's historically gotten manic with an antidepressant before. That, that too may signal a subtype uh, or a, gen a genetic subtype. Who knows that? You're, you're the more inducible form of the illness. I like to ask patients about other forms of inducibility, like what happens when you get sleep deprived or when you cross time zones. Uh, I don't think anyone's ever paired that with antidepressant induction, but in my mind, I look at things in the environment like antidepressants or chronobiological events that could identify a subtype of the illness. So these are all things that I think we have to put together to, to build the story of candidacy for an antidepressant safety and, and, and risk. Yeah, I, I love that idea of kind of that ease of switch. So people that do get triggered by sleep deprivation, get triggered by other environmental events, could they be at increased risk? That's a, that's a fascinating topic. Well, let's dive into a little different question. How about with or without mood stabilizers? So if we have a mood stabilizer on board, are we good to go? Can we go ahead and throw some antidepressants on top of it? Top it off? What do you think, Jeff? Yeah, so that was that was the treat. The, the teaching when I was in training was never start the antidepressant until you first started the antimanic drug to give you a ceiling of protection. That's what the practice guidelines said back in the 90s. And then after the guidelines came the research. And so the problem with the research, as I read it, is it's not definitive. It's mostly observational studies that look back retrospectively and ask, well, what can we say about people that were taking an antimanic drug with or without an antidepressant, and how did they do? So there's some big studies out there. There was a large Swedish registry study with about 3,000 patients published a few years back that said, sure enough, 
the, the bipolar patients who took an antidepressant without an anti-manic mood stabilizer were more likely to have a manic episode over time as compared to the ones uh, who were taking it with a mood stabilizer. But as the authors of that study themselves acknowledged in the discussion, when it's not a randomized study, you can't really know cause and effect. What we call confounding by indication means there may be some selection. So it's possible that the people that were on the mood stabilizer were the ones who were more at risk for mania to begin with. And the ones who were on an antidepressant alone may have been deemed to be a different group. So, so until we get prospective studies, it's, it's hard to know. And the, the main prospective study I think of is the STEP-BD, although even there, no one, no one has done an antidepressant alone. That's, that's an antidepressant with the mood stabilizer versus the mood stabilizer alone. And, and there we didn't see a difference. So I, I hate to say this, but I think we, we fall back on expert guidance more than evidence when we say you'd better have, better have an anti-manic drug in the picture. The ISBD consensus statement from some years back draws the distinction out here for bipolar one versus two and saying, please don't use an antidepressant alone in a bipolar one depressed patient. You might give consideration in a non-mixed, non-rapid cycling, non-recently manic, et cetera, bipolar two. But I, I think this is still more of a consensus-based view than, than, than dogma. Uh, what, what's your view on this, Greg? I think you've hit it. Let's just kind of summarize for the audience, okay? So antidepressants, bipolar one, the data says probably stay away. Antidepressants, recent mixed symptoms, the data says probably stay away. Antidepressants, historical timeline, I have cycled a lot in the last year with some manic or hypomanic episodes, probably stay away. And then your genetic marker around the serotonin gene may have some insights about where the future is going to take us with genetic predictors. Giving them guidance about when to use an antidepressant, Joe, and you correct me if I'm wrong here. If it's bipolar two, there's no mixed symptoms, there's no recent hypomania, and there's been a good history of response to antidepressants in the past. That's a place where we may think about using an antidepressant. Is that what you would kind of put it in? For starters, then you could throw in no rapid cycling, no history of antidepressant-induced mania. If you do the pharmacogenetics, there's a little bit of data saying a history of substance abuse may be a risk factor. You know, the sort of gr grim side of this is when you whittle it down, you're left with about 10% of bipolar patients who might be good candidates. And so when, when I've discussed this with colleagues, they'll often say, well, that leaves you with 90% of bipolar depressed patients that aren't good candidates. So are you going to over attend to the 10% that might be okay with it? Or are you going to focus more on the 90% where we need something else? And I think the answer is both. If you fall on that 10%, by all means, feel, feel free and embark, but recognize that that's a, that's a small minority of patients. Totally agree. So here's speaking of the future, Greg, I'm going to ask you about, tell me if this is the future, your opinion about ketamine or S-ketamine for bipolar depression. We, we know that, you know, the, the studies, the indication for S-ketamine intranasal is in unipolar disorder, but there is an off-label database for ketamine itself. So curious your thoughts about its role for bipolar depression and how you think about factors like a history of psychosis or mania. What, how do you think about ketamine? Yeah, I, I think it's a fascinating question, Joe. Once again, we're going beyond the standard monomine antidepressants. Um, I've been involved with a lot of the S-ketamine work, and I've had patients on S-ketamine in, in and out of the clinical trials for four and a half to five years now. And what we see is if you have treatment-resistant depression, if you have major depression with suicidal ideation, there's a chunk of those people that are going to go on to have bipolar disorder and likely have bipolar, right? What we've seen is in those studies, the switch rate 
out of that group of patients was very, very low. I know at our office, we have used it off-label, the ketamine products in people that do have bipolar depression. It's not our first-line treatment. It's kind of a third-line, fourth-line treatment when other first-line treatments haven't worked. But we've used it, and we think our overall hint of success is pretty good in that group of patients. And I think the ketamine data, even though the trials are small, would show us that for bipolar depression in small data sets, it looked relatively successful. Now, caveats, as you said, recent psychotic episode. I'm going to be hard-pressed to use a ketamine product in that patient. Here's the, the more unique caveat, Joe, and I'll get this. I had a psychotic episode a year ago when I was maybe smoking something I shouldn't have been smoking. Does that mean I can use ketamine or does that mean I should stay away from ketamine? I think the answer can be both. Does that mean you might be a good candidate for ketamine because your, your NMDA receptor is primed and sensitized to the psychotomimetic effects? I know. So, so a patient like that, I would say, listen, we're going to proceed with caution. There may be an increased risk of some things coming out. We're going to have to watch that very carefully. But as long as you go in with your eyes open and you understand that this is a treatment where we've tried other approved treatments at this point, this may be a treatment that helps to get you out of your depressive episode. What else, what else would you caution there, Joe? So recent psychosis, you know, history of ongoing substance abuse, anywhere else where you'd be really careful with the ketamine molecules? Yeah, so I think it is it is fascinating. It's mechanistically different. So we're finally getting away from the same old, same old monoamine story. And ketamine does seem unique. You know, people looked at other NMDA receptor antagonists without finding quite the same class effect. There's a couple newish things, you know, coming along, uh, the decycloserine and, and such and um, uh, dextromethorphan, bupropion products. So, so we're interested in the mechanism more broadly. But ketamine itself, you, you got to acknowledge, it can have a rapid effect. It can have a large effect. So the size of the effect is awfully big. In fact, it's one of the biggest effect sizes in psychiatry. And for people with bipolar depression who may not get better, even with standard, let's say, FDA-approved treatments, where do you go from there? So we used to talk about ECT, I think, this way. It's, it's for urgent intervention when someone's very suicidal and gravely impaired, and you'll go into the hospital for ECT, and it's, it's kind of the, the big gun. I think ketamine is moving up into that kind of mindset of a, of a big gun for urgently ill, rapid onset treatment. I wish we had more data. <laughs> we keep saying that, but it's true. There's, at last count, I think, three randomized trials in bipolar depression which look favorable, but wow, how, how I wish we, we actually had uh, something even more extensive so we could counsel our patients and say, not only this is promising and rationale-based, but if other things don't work, because you know, it's not the first-line treatment for unipolar either. You have to have failed uh, you know, two to four other things. So I'd love to see something comparable for bipolar depression as a guideline so that we know when to use it. And then obviously the frequency of administration as ketamine in unipolar disorder brings with it the recipe for 48 weeks of how to continue it as maintenance. And we don't have that at all in bipolar depression. You get your IV infusion anywhere from what, one to six, and then you kind of wing it. So that to me is one of the biggest dangling threads is if you do get a response and you have bipolar disorder and you're watching for switch processes. So there's many cautionary notes, but I think it, it deserves a place on the roster of options after the, the, uh, the standardized treatments are, are used. And, and I think in our clinic setting, Joe, what we've done is it's part of our safety net for those patients with bipolar depression. It's part of our safety net. It's probably the safety net we go to before ECT, as you said. Um, if I had a loved one with bipolar depression, I'd probably go to ketamine before I would go to ECT. But it's not going to be your first line agent. I had a bipolar depression some months ago who'd struggled off and on with suicidality. And, and uh, the person called me to say you know, they were suicidal and should they go to the ER? 
And I said, no, I want you to call this number because I have a colleague who does IV ketamine and can see you today. And it literally saved her life. And ever since then, she, she's been quite grateful and she's been on a maintenance regimen. We watch her carefully. It's paired with an atypical antipsychotic. We've got it down almost to a science. But it was one of the first times in my career that I can remember talking to someone who was urgently ill and saying, don't go to the ER, right? You know, here's, here's an alternative intervention that could save your life. Yeah. And, and, and as you said, there's a lot of fascinating research right now. For the audience out there, you know, I've been doing this for 30 years. There are more novel products in development and being researched looking at the glutamate cascade, the GABA glutamate junction, you know, neural steroids, I think are fascinating about where the future is. Joe, let's dive into what we have right now as we wrap this up for our audience. So if somebody has, you know, you've tried the standard medicines that are FDA approved for bipolar depression, and they've either had significant side effects or it just hasn't worked. Walk us through where you would think about using an antidepressant. What would you do next? Yeah, so here's, here's a conundrum. If, if I've done all the standard things and I've done them right, and I've, you know, skirted the confounders, so we've, you know, cleaned up your substance use, and we've gotten rid of the, you know, the sleep hygiene issues and, and all the other factors that can interfere with the response, and we're still not seeing what we want. And this question is, do you then go to an antidepressant? And here's the problem I have with, with that question is it implies that the antidepressant is going to work. Now, there's never a guarantee of what's going to work, but I think this is the really hard discussion to have with the patient when we say the, the FDA approved options, if they have not been helpful, do we go to something that's never been shown in studies to work, bear with my phrasing, or do we talk about other novel interventions that might include ketamine? that might include other forms of neuromodulation, that might include ECT, that might include molecules. You mentioned some of the things that are in development. There's some off-label use with drugs like armodafinil or pramipexol that, that have an evidence base that's off-label. I present this to the patient as a conundrum for them and me together to figure out, but I have to make it clear to them, let's not go into this assuming, all right, now we're finally gonna give you an SSRI as if we were withholding it as the potent thing that we knew all along was going to work. Quite not the case. We're, we're saying there's no research to say it's going to work. We could try it. And if you want my opinion, and I've gone through that list of candidacy, if, you know, if I thought you were a candidate, I probably would have given it to you long ago. So I'd have to say to the patient, we could try this, but the biggest risk, quite frankly, is it may not work. The number needed to treat with an SSRI is, is about 29. And I'll explain what that means to the patient. And, you know, our, our viewers, you know, how many people you have to give a treatment to before you'll have an additional case that fares better than, than with a placebo or an alternative. And we'd like that to be a single digit number. So 29 is really not very optimistic. If a patient wants to try it and I've explained all this to them and I've provided them the alternatives, including things like ECT, or there's data now with RTMS in bipolar depression off-label. So I'll, my job is to present to them as best I can the knowledge so that they can make an informed decision. With that, if they say, yeah, I'd still want to try vortioxetine. I'm a researcher. I'll phrase it to them as we can certainly try this. Just I want this to be an informed decision because we have a tough spot. There's not an obvious next thing to go to, but that's how I think of it. How about you, Greg? Joe, I agree. So I think at that point, you know, I, I call it prescribing with hope. Listen, we have a lot of treatment options out there. We've tried the, the main options, but we can try some new ones together. I'm going to follow you carefully. Here's the side effects I want to watch for. The possibility of, you know, destabilizing you. The possibility of maybe starting you cycling. The possibility that maybe this will work for a while, but not last. The lasting effect is what I see quite often when we use these monoamine antidepressants. 
And then I think, as you said, we now have a whole new generation of antidepressants that we really don't have data one way or the other with that we may think about because of comorbid anxiety. We may think about because of comorbid cognitive side effects. Um, and then we may think about combinations of medicines that have not been studied together. Um, so I think it's a journey with our patient. I think it's listening to our patient, but I think it's also prescribing with hope at that point to our patients. I love the word hope. It, it's not used enough. And it, it's hard to, for us ourselves to maintain hope. Gee, you've been on all the standard treatments. And if you've had one or two antidepressant trials that haven't worked, how do you maintain a sense of hope? Sometimes I think that also means amplifying non-pharmacologic treatments. There's data with phototherapy and bipolar depression. The database with cognitive therapy is actually in some ways even as strong as, that's stronger than with monoaminergic antidepressants. I will also sit down with patients sometimes and say there's a website called clinicaltrials.gov. And if we're going to contemplate a treatment that hasn't been well studied for your ailment yet, let's consider the possibility that you'll get better care trying it in a very well-monitored study. Greg, you and I have both done clinical trials. And so if somebody is a, is a candidate to be in a clinical trial, they get exquisite observation, safety monitoring. And uh, I, I've known many patients over the years who've started out their clinical trajectory eventually by, by getting into clinical trials and, and do well thereafter. So that's another avenue of hope. But Joe, that's 100%. You know, it's interesting in our field. If your mom had metastatic breast cancer and there wasn't a medicine that was approved for her type of breast cancer, you'd probably look to see what research was going on. I think the same thing should be true for the brain in the same way we approve it. You know, you think about most of the medicines that are now FDA approved for bipolar depression. You and I have been a part of those trials, bringing those as a safety base and an evidence base for our patients. So let's prescribe with hope. Let's go where the data tells us. For anybody out there that hasn't read any of Joe's work, let me refer you back to some of his writings. He's an expert in this field. Take a look at some of his data. It'll guide you through what to think about, but also what not to be doing with your patients. And make sure you look at Greg's work too. He's done some very wonderful studies talking about things like the complexity of attentional processing and ADD and mood disorder patients. So not just back at you, Greg, but I think, you know, we try to blend clinical experience with empirical studies and translate that onto our our colleagues and our patients. And I think that's the model I try to instill, uh, as, as do you. So it's a blend of knowing what you know and also knowing what you don't know and then looking to the literature as, as a guide point. Well, thank you today for our audience and we look forward to talking to you in the future. Likewise, thank you all for joining. Thank you very much, Dr. Goldberg and Dr. Mattingly. And thanks to you, the listeners, for joining us. As a reminder, to view other programs on bipolar depression, please click on the link in the show notes. As always, thanks for listening.